We took a, a break from Lamentations last week, but we're going to go back there this morning. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying the, uh, the, the book of Lamentations. Uh, my mother-in-law just patted me on the back to remind me to tell any children um, who are kindergarten age and up that they can head out with her and there's going to be a lesson for them as well. Uh, this is something that we talked about on Vision Sunday. We want to give the kids an opportunity to um, to hear from the Word of God and to develop their understanding there as well. So it looks like everyone is good. Okay, cool. So we've been studying the book of Lamentations. So if you take your Bible, Larry's got a handful back there. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I'd love for you to have one in front of you uh, because it's really important that we see what, what's going on in the pages of Scripture before us. And you see that I'm not just making some of these things up, but that they're actually contained here within the text. Um, so we're in Lamentations chapter 4. You know, my heart was really pressed this week in, in a few different ways. And one was just the continued emphasis on, on the importance of Scripture in the life of the believer. Um, and, and, and in a lot of ways, I think, that, uh, I think that some of the questions that we've raised as we've looked through the book of Lamentations, if you've been with us um, regularly for the last few weeks, um, some of the questions that we've raised coming out of the book of Lamentations, like what is the purpose of suffering and how does that, how does that play into the life of the believer and some of those concepts and ideas, which are, are hard to grapple with in our world, I think sometimes when we look at some of those issues, we think to ourselves, well, no, that's not, that's not the case. Like, God would not use suffering in my life to, to make me more like Jesus. Um, that doesn't seem like a good God, and, and we hear that pretty regularly in our world. How does a good God allow these things to happen in, in our world? And, and the fact of the matter is, if you, if you look in Scripture, if you spend a significant amount of time in Scripture, you see that that is the case. And in order to understand who God is, we have to understand um, that he is revealing himself in the pages of Scripture in a unique and a profound way. Um, and to, to look at something and to say, uh, make a statement about, like, well, if God, God is good, then, then suffering wouldn't exist, um, that, that is a, a significant departure from reality. Um, it is simply not true. Um, it has taken God and it has diminished him and it has made him weak and ineffective. Um, and that is not a God that we serve. We serve the God of the Bible. I was watching a clip on Facebook this week uh, from some late night TV show. Um, it was Matt Damon, and he was recounting an encounter he had with Prince. Maybe some of you saw this. Um, they were in London, and Matt Damon saw Prince, and he walked up to him, and he said, um, and he said, hey, Prince. And Prince was like, hey, Matt Damon. And he, and he said, <laughs> that was a terrible impression. But he said, uh, he said, and Matt Damon was like, I was just trying to make a small talk. And he was like, hey, man, you still live in Minnesota, right? And Prince says, Prince doesn't live in Minnesota. Prince lives in Prince's own heart. And I just thought to myself, what does that mean? That is so bizarre. That is crazy. Um, but there was a significant departure from reality there. Like, Prince lives in Prince's own heart? Like, what does that mean? I don't know. And everyone had a good laugh about it. But I think sometimes when we look at the pages of Scripture, we think to ourselves, no, 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 no. That can't be true. That, that's not what's going on here. Um, and then we, we actually depart with reality. And fundamentally, what we're doing is we're creating our own God. We're creating a God in our image rather than uh, re responding and recognizing that we are created in God's image. And that's problematic. And so we're going to be a people who look to and understand and have a, a deep and profound understanding of the pages of Scripture. I think that... I, I think that um, Here's what I'm not saying, okay? What I'm not saying is pointing my finger at everyone and saying, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. What I'm saying is, look at your Bible, understand what it is. Understand it is God's direct revelation to you about who he is, and then you'll read your Bible. 
Remember we talked about last week, the, the Christian life is all about responses. It's all about responses. It's all about seeing and knowing and understanding who God is. It's the definition of discipleship, just like Doc, Dr. John Perkins said this morning on that video, that discipleship is learning. Like we are learning together who God is and what he's done for us. Um, and so, and then, out of that understanding, we decide to then respond. Um, and so this morning, I think, I think that, that, that leads us then into this discussion of the last couple of chapters in Lamentations 4 and 5. So if you're there, let's look at this together. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the first several verses, and then I'm definitely going to uh, refer to this text throughout the course of the morning. So just have it in front of you, just be prepared. I'm going to point out a few things that are important, but just for the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read all 44 verses that are here. Let's look at the first, um, um, let's look at the first eight verses, though. Just to start us out, and that will give us, in chapter 4, and that will give us sort of this, this setup and this picture of where we want to go this morning. So let me read this for us. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious stones, so the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of the potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. Which, had, which was overthrown in the moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot, and are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones, and has become dry as wood. So as we look at these first eight verses and we think back to what we've been talking about through the through the book of the book of Lamentations, one idea that we've continued to press on is God's commitment to the restoration of his people. That there is nothing that is off the table when it comes to God restoring his people. And this book points to an incredible portrait of this boundless commitment to the restoration of his people. And we saw uh, four weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, in when, whatever the first week is that we spent time together in Lamentations, that the ultimate expression of God's restoration is, is found in Jesus Christ. So what we want to do is when we look at Lamentations, we want to see this pushing us to a greater understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. But as we look at the text in particular, it's important to just note a few things. This book was written by the prophet Jeremiah in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., um, the, they were taken away from their home, they were taken into slavery, they were driven out um, because of their sin, because they ignored God, they ignored the prophets that God had sent them to bring them back, and they had, they had defective leadership. And so God said, I'm going to restore my people back to myself, and this is the means by which I'm going to do it. And so he allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. So as we've looked at the book of Lamentations, we see that it's actually organized into five poems, and that's where we get our five chapters. 
There are five poems here in this book, and there, there's even a further organizational structure here where there's actually three eulogies given in the course of, so there's actually this formal expression of mourning and of grief for Jerusalem. Um, so there's chapter one is the first one, and these are all marked by the word how. You'll see that in your, in your Bible, the word how. In chapter one, um, we see how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And then in chapter three, we see, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter two, we see how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud, marking the beginning of a second eulogy. And then chapter four, which we're looking at today, is how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. So this word how, typically an, exclama an exclamation to begin a eulogy in, 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 in Israelite culture. So like we did last time, what I'm going to do is look at some of the things contained within actually just one this morning, one primary thrust that's going on here in chapters 4 and 5 in this eulogy, um, and then we're going to highlight some things and, then, and look at some takeaways. But just like we do every week, I want to, I want to give you a big idea that's going on here in, in, in this text, in, in chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Lamentations. A big idea is this. That the weight of sin drives God's people to cry out for a great reversal and restoration. A restoration that ultimately finds its expression through God's perfect work in Jesus. So in some respects, this is, this is a, uh, a bit of a review for us from where we've been so far in this text. But at the same time, there are some new concepts and ideas, primarily the idea of reversal here, um, given in chapters 4 and 5, and then the cry for restoration. If you look at the end of chapter 5, um, verses 20 and 21 um, in particular, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. And Jeremiah actually appeals to God's nature in verse 19, if you just go back one more verse. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. So Jeremiah recognizes who God is and then makes an appeal to him for restoration based on his merit and not the merit of the Israelites. So, so this morning, then, I, what I want to do is first think about the idea of reversal, because this is a, a big biblical theme that we through, see throughout all of the narratives of Scripture, this idea that the state of things is, is getting prepared to be reversed. Um, this idea is, 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 is incredibly prevalent, and I'd love to, to give you a, a, an overarching understanding of it, but what we're going to do is we're going to focus here in Lamentations this morning. So these two chapters, right, these two chapters, chapters 4 and chapter 5, these poems are literally littered with language. That was a, a, an incredible alliteration. Um, these two chapters are littered with language of opposites. It's fun to say. And they're really simple concepts. There, there's nothing really crazy going on here. So if you're looking at chapter 4, you just begin to see these, right? How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. And then if you look down at verse 5, those who feast on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. You see the reversal there? From those who are feasting to those who are perishing. From those who are clothed in fine material to those who embrace ash. And these go on and on, and we'll actually hit a few of these as we go. So, things used to be good, and now they're bad. Your idea of reversal, it's simple. Simple concept. Things used to be good, but now they're bad. So this week, um, I went to change our three-month-old 
three-month-old's diaper. And it ended in me placing a phone call to Rebecca, who was also in the apartment for relief. So if that gives you any kind of understanding of what might have happened, I'm not going to go into any details. But I had to, I literally had to place a phone call in the middle of changing a diaper because it was just that, that devastating. <laughs> Things were good in that situation when I went up to like singing to her, talking, and things got bad very quickly. And this is kind of the idea, right? This is the idea. When, when we see the beginning of this eulogy, how the, how the gold has grown dim. Things went from good, gold is good, gold is precious, gold is meant to be on display. Things went from good to bad. What was intended to be, again, gold, was intended to be brilliant, what was intended to be on display, what was intended to be precious, is now tarnished and buried, and worthless. And this is really an apt metaphor for Jeremiah to use, because, because really as we look at gold, right, this is Israel's purpose before the nations. Israel's purpose was to demonstrate who God was, the God of the universe, the God who created all things, who spoke everything into existence with one word. This God was meant to be displayed before the nations by Israel, to bear witness to God's holiness and to his divine nature. But as we see throughout Israel's history, they devalued and rejected that purpose that God had given them. They devalued that. And so when we see how the gold has grown dim, how this precious metal, how this, how this metal that was meant to be on display, how this brilliant metal is now dulled, um, we see that they rejected God's law and those who God sent to help them see their problem. We see this metaphor played itself out perfectly as we look throughout Israel's history. And the opposite language, this just continues throughout the course of chapters 4 and 5. Those who feasted, we pointed that out, now perish in verse, uh, verse 5. And those who were exalted are now cast down, look at verses six and, or 7 and 8, we read these, that princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk, basically saying that, hey, these guys, there was so much prosperity, they got to sit in a tent all day and just hang out, they didn't have to do anything. And now, in verse 8, their face is blacker than soot. They are, they are lowest of the low. If we look again in, uh, in, uh, in later in the, uh, in the chapter, let me see if I can lay my eyes on it. And actually in chapter 5, we see that they, the, the, the men have to carry the wood, and they have to, uh, old men have left the city gate, they're, the young men, their music. Verse 13 of chapter 5, young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. So these men, these people who, their princes were purer than snow white of the milk, they didn't have to do any work, they sat in the tent, they weren't affected by the sun, because they aren't doing physical manual labor, are now doing the, the exact opposite. A great reversal has taken place in their world. Oh, we see that the compassion that is, that is cultivated in this prosperous community is now cast aside, it's discarded just for the sake of survival. 
Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the, uh, of the daughter of my people. What was once clean is now unclean. If you look at verse 15, you see, Away, unclean people cried at them. Uh, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. They became fugitives and wanderers. Again, this idea that they're disconnected, torn from their homes, and slaves. And the inheritance that they had uh, was robbed from them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. Their inheritance has been turned over to strangers. And then they went from freedom to slavery. This idea contained within it in verse 8 of chapter 5. And then their joy turns to mourning. As we see throughout the entire book of Lamentations. This great lament is given because of what has befallen them because of their sin. So this reversal is important to note because it highlights the devastating nature of sin. Where the people were and what was due to them um, came upon them in 587 BC in the destruction of this city, this devastation of this city. And like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, this physical restoration came to Jerusalem. When it finally did, about 70 years later, the city would be restored. They would be allowed to go back into the city. They would be allowed to rebuild the wall and to rebuild the temple. But we see in, in Ezra, when, it, when they go back and do that, that the, the glory of the temple, that the foundation of the temple was far lesser, was far lesser than the glory of the temple that Solomon built. And why is that important? I mean, that's, that's incredibly important because the people thought that they needed their physical situation to be restored, but in reality, it was a spiritual restoration that was needed. And so when their physical reality was restored, it was just an indicator, a pointer, a shadow of what was going to come in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, hey, this temple's going to get torn down in three days, it's going to be rebuilt, when he's talking about his body when he was going to die and then be raised again and come back as the, as the manifest presence of God, we begin to understand that the, that the restoration that was needed was not, was not a physical one, but a spiritual one in nature. It's like if you break your arm. How many of you have broke their arm? I've broken arms. Um, if you go to the doctor and they just slap a cast on it, it's going to heal all wonky. And it's not going to heal correctly, and it's going to be all maybe deformed or defigured, and you might lose function. It's gonna, but they, what do they need to do? They need to set it, right? They need to set the bone prior to um, putting a cast on it, prior to it healing. And this is kind of the idea, right? Like, that, that they said, they thought to themselves, okay, we need this physical restoration to take place. And so they slapped a band-aid on, they slapped a cast on but in reality, they needed the bone to be set. They needed something internal to happen to them in a way um, that they could not accomplish in and of themselves. So Israel was desperate in need of spiritual restoration, first and foremost. We see that a little bit throughout the course of, 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 this, of, of Lamentations and throughout the rest of um, Israel's history leading up to Jesus But ultimately, when the physical restoration lacked, it was pointing to a greater restoration, one that would come in Jesus Christ. 
And so just for us, just to consider that for a moment, because I think we do this all of the time. I think this is who we are as just a people. I think we do this all the time. We, uh, we, we get together, maybe say this, you're in a community group, or you're hanging out, having coffee with someone. We emphasize the physical, and we diminish the spiritual in a lot of ways. And in some respects, we, we pray for people to be physically healed, but not spiritually healed. Um, we ask questions about people's houses and cars, and not about their soul. And the best way that I can come up with a, a, an analog here is that when someone comes to you and says, my car isn't working, um, and the engine is on fire, what you don't say is, I'm glad I don't live in Minnesota where they put salt on the road and you get rust all over your car. <laughs> Dude, your engine's on fire. So one of the prevalent themes as we move to the New Testament, I want to take a look at this passage in Luke. Um, one of the prevalent themes in the Gospel of Luke is this idea of a great reversal that was taking place. So I've got your Bibles in front of me, in front of you. I have my Bible in front of me. If you have your Bible in front of you, flip to Luke chapter 14. And this is just a few verses before what we talked about last Sunday when we talked about what it meant to count the cost in verses 25 through 33 of Luke chapter 14, but what I want to look at, at is verse 17 through, or I'm sorry, 7 through 11 for you. I'm just going to read this for us. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, when you, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he might say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And what Jesus says here, this seems counterintuitive, right? But this is a direct indication of the reversal that's going on when Jesus shows up. Because this is demonstrated perfectly in who Jesus is. And our world suggests that this mentality is ridiculous. It suggests, get there early and get the best seat. Right? Mark has the best seat this morning. He's right there. I don't know who's fighting you for it. The exaltation of ourself is not beneficial, is what Jesus is saying. And this is hard for us, especially maybe for the younger generation, because we live in this social media world, right? Where... where we can project to anyone who we are um, or who we want to be. It's pretty apparent in that. And some of you are like, well, maybe I'm not on social media. Okay. But this, the fact stands, your heart is going to seek, seek exaltation somewhere. It's going to desire to be exalted in some capacity, at some level, in some place, whether it be at work, at home, in the community. 
And we see the humbling of oneself is, a, is perfectly exemplified by Jesus, though, right? Like, when Jesus says that, it's not because, because he just wants to just give us some random arbitrary command and say, go do this. What he's saying is, like, look at me. This is exactly what I have done in my world. I've taken the lowest seat in order that I might be exalted. He was the God-man who came to earth. He was God. He took on human flesh. He was born into a poor family, in a barn. He was criticized, he was shamed by his contemporaries. He was wrongfully accused of blasphemy. He was murdered. He was beaten and mocked and scorned prior to that. And this is the great reversal. One thing that was once now brilliant, as we see at the beginning of chapter 4 in Lamentations, how the gold has grown dim. One thing that was, was at one point brilliant. One thing that was at one point on display. One thing that was at one point regarded as precious. Now was dull. And localized. And reviled. We see this in Jesus. The God of the universe, brilliant, came to earth and took on flesh and was just an average looking first century Palestinian dude. He was localized. He was everywhere. He was the God of the universe. He existed everywhere at any point. <coughs> he was there when earth was formed, but he was localized. He was in one place at one time. And he was reviled. The God that was meant to be exalted above all else was now criticized, shamed, accused, beaten, mocked, scorned, executed. But unlike Jerusalem's restoration, 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., a greater glory was in store for Jesus, and in Him also is a reality of greater glory for us. So this idea of the reversal that's taking place, the reversal of the fortune of, of Israel, of Jerusalem, is now pointing us to our takeaway this morning, which is simply this. That Jesus endured a, rehears a, re a rehearsal. Jesus endured a reversal so that we could experience a restoration. Jesus endured a reversal so that we could experience a restoration. We've begun to flesh that out already, but what does that ultimately mean? What we read in Lamentations is the fate of Jerusalem can be clearly seen in the life of Jesus. The precious thing of God, His beloved Son, was reviled by the kingdoms of the earth. The wrath of God, which we rightly deserved, was poured out on Jesus on the cross. What was unblemished was sacrificed on our behalf was clean, took on all uncleanliness. What makes Jesus different is that he did not commit the sin. We see in Jerusalem's case, it was their sin that led to this punishment. But what makes Jesus different is that he did not commit the sin. He was, in, he was our sin. It was our sin that went on to him. For which he suffered and died, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The punishment that Jeremiah writes about in Lamentations 
for Jerusalem was brought about by her own sin. The punishment that Jesus endured on the cross was brought about by everyone else's sin. Jesus did not exalt himself, but he humbled himself so that he might be exalted. And so that passage that we looked at in Luke this morning, if we, if we seek to exalt ourselves, then we miss the point of that passage. We rest in the fact that Jesus humbled himself perfectly. Because for us in our daily lives, that is not going to be a reality. We are not going to humble ourselves perfectly because we are broken, we are corrupted, we are, we are indwelled by sin. Jesus is making us new, and yet that is a process that is not yet complete. So what does that mean for us in our day-to-day? -day? I think that it means one very important thing, and this, this is probably actually more of the takeaway as it relates to our day-to-day -day lives. It shifts our identity away from self-identifying or, or self-promoting, self-seeking, to selfless and self-denying. It shifts our identity from self-seeking and self-promoting to selfless and self-denying. Jerusalem, as we see here throughout her history, found her identity in, in her buildings, and her systems, and her structures. And what she needed to define herself through was, what, the way in which she needed to define herself was through her relationship and the purpose that God had given to her. The identity that God had granted to Jerusalem was to be a light to the nations, to be brilliant, to be on display, to be precious. To demonstrate to all the power of God and who he was, his divine nature. So when she, she needed to define herself in that way. So practically then, when you get overlooked for a promotion at work, you understand whether you get the promotion or not. Your identity and worth is wrapped up in Christ and the exaltation that is coming, not in this life, but in the life to come. When you have a miscommunication with your spouse and you forget to get milk on the way home from work, you don't want to know what I did this week? <laughs> you ident your identity is found not in your failure to perform, but on the way, or, uh, but your identity, let me, let me rephrase that. Your identity is not found in your ability to perform, but in Christ's perfect obedience, this is, I think it's a better way to say it, in Christ's obedience to the Father. His performance, not yours. When someone criticizes you unfairly fairly at work or, or in the community, when someone levels a charge against you and slanders you with no foundation in truth, you don't need to defend your earthly reputation because your heavenly identity is fixed. Matthew 5.11, these are the, the end of the Beatitudes and, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the great reversal. Reviled, persecuted, thought to be lesser. On the account of Jesus, 
or rejoice and be glad because that is not what is going to take place in eternity. So this then, ultimately, this reversal, it becomes a restoration, a reversal of identity away from self-promoting, away from self-seeking to selfless and self-denying. And an identity that is unyoked from the burden, from burden that is free from sin, and that is free to do all that God has commanded us. The fact of the matter is that if we have not humbled ourselves before God, we have pursued our own exaltation. We have not kept God's commands. We have rejected His word. And there's one simple word for this all. It's idolatry. It's like, what are you worshiping? What are you exalting that isn't God? So it's a question for us this week as we go from here. Even just as we sit here this morning, what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping your ability to uh, perform at work and to get everything right and to check the list when you, you get it from your, your spouse? Are you worshiping a promotion at work? Are you worshiping Jesus who has freely given you all things? So if we've not humbled ourselves before God, we're pursuing our own exaltation, we haven't kept God's commands, we've rejected His word, for the, re the reality of the fact is that we have all done that and we all do that regularly. Much like Jerusalem here, we deserve devastation as we see recounted in Lamentations. And that a momentary disruption of circumstances might sound light based on what we read in Lamentations, but it was momentary. We deserve a devastation that is ongoing, eternal, unmitigated, wrath-filled, fiery. And the fact of the matter is that outside of Jesus, that's exactly what we get. That's not meant to save you, that's meant to press you, or that's not meant to, that's not meant to, uh, that's not meant to scare you, it's meant to press you to the gospel. God is so committed to the restoration of his people as we see in Lamentations that he took on human flesh. He suffered, he bled and died in order that we might find restoration in him and him alone. So I'll leave you with this thought. Unlike Jesus, unlike us, excuse me, unlike us, Jesus humbled himself, reversed his position of exaltation to humiliation, and did so perfectly. To demonstrate to us that in our weakness, God's power is perfected in us. Let us pray.